You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 7th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hungary strews further obstacles in Sweden's path to NATO. Tucker Carlson goes to Moscow, though regrettably plans to come back, and the French commit to undermining an enduring stereotype. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Marta Lorimer and Sean Ryan will discuss the day's big stories. And our On This Day historical series delivers an instructive lesson in how wrong it can all go for tyrants. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Marta Lorimer, fellow in European politics at the London School of Economics, and by Sean Ryan, director of media at Save the Children. Hello to you both. Hi. Um, Marta, you, as I understand it, have been taking an interest already in the Eurovision Song Contest. It's, It's getting worse than Christmas. It's only February and we're already talking about it. Well, that's because you haven't been following very closely. This is that is the, correct. I haven't. This is the most important week for Italians because this is when Italy picks its Eurovision um, mm-hmm. candidate. Let's call them that way. Uh, it's Eurovision entry through the Festival of Sanremo, um, which is a. It's basically what Eurovision is based on. Um, it was the inspiration for Eurovision, and it's a wonderful thing. But it goes on forever until two and two thirty in the morning. Um, so if at any point I cease to make sense, that's, that's the reason. <laughs> so do, do we have a winner? Do we know what fresh hell Italy intends to inflict upon us come Eurovision? Absolutely not. For now, we only know who the uh, journalist's favourite pick is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a 70-year-old uh, legend with blue hair. Um, but we don't have a winner yet. We will have a winner sometime in the middle of the night on Saturday. Well, that's something to look forward to. Uh, Sean, you have been up a mountain in Peru, which is probably the ideal place to be during an Italian song contest. Very good. I could go back for it, couldn't I? I've been on the slopes of the Andes in Peru. Uh, They're practically vertical, or at least it feels that way as you're walking up them at 15,000 feet. And I was there to look at um, what Save the Children is doing to protect the potato crop. I didn't know until I went there that Peru has 5,000 varieties of potato, and they plant them at different levels on the mountainside so that if one variety fails they there isn't going to be a potato famine because they just go on to the next variety and share it out but there's been a big drought lately because of the climate crisis and so the children has been putting in uh, water tanks and a special compost which helps potatoes to grow in dry soil so that's why i was there well, fun though it would be to talk individually through all 5,000 varieties of Peruvian potato. And to be honest, I think they're making that up. I mean, who's going to check? Uh, we will start with Hungary. More specifically, it's Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who is continuing to be tedious about ratifying Sweden's accession to NATO. Hungary is the last member of the alliance holding out after even Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan decided he had milked the situation sufficiently mercilessly. And 
and encouraged Turkey's parliament to waive Sweden in. Hungary's parliament was supposed to consider this yesterday, but Orban and his Fidesz party boycotted the sitting. It appears that Orban remains miffed by the disinclination of Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Christensen to visit Budapest to endure any further whinging. Um, Marta, do we know what Viktor Orban's problem actually is, or indeed if he actually has a problem, rather than just seeing as this as yet another opportunity to get his name in the papers? Well, we actually don't really know what the problem is. It doesn't seem to be that he has any substantive opposition um, to Sweden joining NATO. So even I think even diplomats are a little bit puzzled by what exactly he is looking for. Um, but of course, we also know from the latest uh, news on how he handled the negotiations for further aid to Ukraine that Orban is still quite friendly with uh, Putin. Mm. So he might just be trying to buy some extra time on that. Um, I'm not, Sean, I will confess, an expert in the constitutional minutiae which governs the NATO alliance, but surely the obvious solution is some sort of one-in-one-out rule (laughs) in which the rest of NATO says, fine, we'll take Sweden, you can go and see how you go on your own. Well, it's a good idea, but it's not how NATO views things. Apparently not. Every single member of NATO has to ratify a new member, and every single member except Hungary has now done that. And uh, it's curious to see that Orban, who made his name as a young politician by demanding the removal of Soviet troops in 1989, is now being accused of a pro-Russian foreign policy. There 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 are those of us who can remember when he was the fresh, exciting face of Eastern European liberalism. Uh, Things have changed. (laughs) (laughs) He is also being accused by the European Commission today of um, running a introducing a a sovereignty protection office, which is a body that will be given the right to get the intelligence services to look into anybody in public life, for which read anybody opposed to Orban in public life. And this is being described by the European Commission as an attack on freedom of speech, freedom of association and uh, and privacy. And uh, looks as if there's going to be an attempt to take Hungary to court and fine it for that. Um, We have discussed on these programmes many times before, Marta, that there's a difference between Turkey being difficult and Hungary being difficult in a NATO context in that you can't just wave Turkey off. It's a colossally important country to NATO. It's NATO's second largest military. It is the bulwark against the Middle East, custodian of the Black Sea, etc. Turkey, with a swiftness that does not seem coincidental after waving Sweden into NATO at last, is getting 40 new F-16s from the United States, upgrades to 79 older F-16s. Is Orban after some sort of payoff? I mean, Orban is always after some kind of payoff. (laughs) Uh, This, again, seems to be his MO. I'm not 100% sure he is going to get any kind of payoff in this case or that he's just... I suppose, wasting everyone's time um, to make sure that he's in the news, that people are talking about Hungary. Although I don't really know if it helps if they're not really talking about it in the best terms. Well, indeed not. And Sean, is he, whether he understands it or not, actually now much more isolated than he was, say, this time, well, six months ago? Because the European Union, if not necessarily NATO, had become accustomed to thinking of Poland and Hungary as as its two problem children. Poland's commitment to NATO was always fairly solid, especially after Russia attacked Ukraine. But 
Orban no longer has a natural ally in Warsaw. In fact, he has quite the opposite uh, in Warsaw now. Donald Tusk has been, in recent weeks, extremely brisk uh, in his remarks about Orban. Yes, uh, the change of government in Poland has undoubtedly left Orban more isolated in Europe. But it is interesting, isn't it, to if you're looking at it from Moscow, to see that there is some division in NATO, some division in Europe, and of course some quite a lot of division in America about the attitude towards supporting Ukraine. And I think the Russians will probably take heart from Orban's stand. Well, on a related subject and sticking with the theme of tedious attention seekers animated by an unsavoury enthusiasm for Vladimir Putin, it has been confirmed that conservative media blowhard Tucker Carlson has recorded an interview with the Russian president in Moscow. It will be available on Carlson's website later this week. Carlson, who made a comfortable living for years pretending to be furious about nonsense before being sacked by Fox News last April for being such a jerk even Fox News noticed, explained himself thus. Since the day the war in Ukraine began, American media outlets have spoken to scores of people from Ukraine, and they have done scores of interviews with Ukrainian President Zelensky. We ourselves have put in a request for an interview with Zelensky, and we hope he accepts. But the interviews he's already done in the United States are not traditional interviews. They are fawning pep sessions specifically designed to amplify Zelensky's demand that the U.S. enter more deeply into a war in Eastern Europe and pay for it. That is not journalism. It is government propaganda, propaganda of the ugliest kind, the kind that kills people. At the same time, our politicians and media outlets have been doing this, promoting a foreign leader like he's a new consumer brand. Not a single Western journalist has bothered to interview the president of the other country involved in this conflict, Vladimir Putin. Most Americans have no idea why Putin invaded Ukraine or what his goals are now. They've never heard his voice. That's wrong. Americans have a right to know all they can about a war they're implicated in. And we have the right to tell them about it because we are Americans too. Freedom of speech is our birthright. We were born with the right to say what we believe. That right cannot be taken away no matter who is in the White House. On Tucker Carlson's claim, and I quote, that nobody has bothered to interview, not a single Western journalist has bothered to interview uh, Vladimir Putin, it is worth noting that this claim has been debunked not only by the dozens of media outlets which have filed interview requests for President Putin in recent years, but by Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov, who has confirmed such approaches but explains that they were knocked back for failing to meet the Kremlin's standards of impartiality. The implication being that Tucker Carlson does. And a reminder at this point that two actual American journalists, Radio Free Europe's Alsu Kermasheva and the Wall Street Journal's Evan Gershkovich, are presently in Russian jails for the crime of attempting journalism. Um, Sean, will you be tuning in to Tucker Carlson's encounter with Vladimir Putin? Well, I stand with Evan, as they say, as the campaign is for his release. Uh, have said. But I will be interested to see what Putin has to say. I just bitterly regret that it's not the BBC that's doing the interview, uh, that it's Tucker Carlson, whose recent scoops include the American seizure of an extraterrestrial starship, uh, complete with pilot, and an interview with a man who claimed to have had cocaine fueled sex with Barack Obama 24 years ago. I mean, huge if true. An allegation for which he was criticised even by Elon Musk, um, whose ex-Twitter uh, hosts the uh, Tucker Carlson show these days. But look, 
at the worst, this will just be giving Putin a platform to repeat his flimsy justification for the invasion of Ukraine, which was that uh, he was saving Ukrainians from uh, Nazis and, and fascists. But at best, it might give us a little bit of insight into how Putin thinks it's going um, and whether he sees uh, hope in the divisions that we're discussing in America and Europe. Um, Marta, I did once discuss uh, Tucker Carlson's career trajectory with somebody who had known him quite well at a particular point. And I did ask them, you know, where do you think the line is between him knowingly just going out and putting on a show because it's what pays his bills or actually believing any of this? And they replied, you're already overthinking it. Uh, Tucker likes money and being on television. So, in those two respects, uh, it's easy enough to see what is in this for Tucker Carlson. As far as we can understand it, why would Vladimir Putin agree to this? I mean, Vladimir Putin probably wants people at this point to get his side of the story. Um, we've kind of heard it, haven't we? Well, yes, of course, we've we've heard it, but maybe it's nicer if it comes from a big American name. Um, and, I mean, it presumably it can't really hurt him. Um, and he is not going to find in front of himself a very critical voice, mm. which presumably explains why it's not the BBC doing this this thing. I mean, Jean-Marie Le Pen, would he accepted hard talk. I don't see Putin accepting any kind of difficult conversation right now. And Tucker did his chances of this interview no harm when he described Zelensky, President Zelensky of Ukraine, as sweaty and rat-like. So I think Putin knows uh, which side of the argument Tucker is coming from. And of course, he would rather give a, an interview with a sympathetic interviewer. Well, to go back to your own experience in working in foreign news, Sean, and, and it does involve occasionally sitting down and having a conversation with people you may find objectionable. I have done it myself. Um but where would you be if you were making these decisions as you used to at an organisation where you had the opportunity at a time like this to interview President Putin? Would you do it? I definitely would do it. I, When I was foreign editor at the Sunday Times, we ran interviews with uh, leaders of Hamas uh, who gave us access to a suicide bomber's school. It made a front page story because it gave us insights into the thinking of suicide bombers that nobody had ever got before. And we did three interviews with President Assad of Syria mm. um, at the height of the war in Syria because it was just interesting to see what he had to say and how he was living. So I would definitely want the interview with Putin, but I would be very um, insistent on asking some pretty aggressive questions. Always within these situations, you have to negotiate on the sort of questions that will be asked before the interview takes place. But you can throw that script out of the window as soon as the interview starts, because what can they do? Walk off the set. Not very likely. Um, there have been some suggestions, uh, Marta, and I think this might just be various EU panjandrums having a bit of fun here, that Tucker Carlson could actually be sanctioned by the European Union um, for undertaking this enterprise. I can see uh, how that would be gratifying, but ultimately is that actually terribly clever? Because one, it would give Tucker Carlson the excuse to say, I am being persecuted by the EU for undertaking an act of journalism. Um, and two, even more annoyingly, he'd be right. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that is the fight that the EU is going to pick. Mm. I, I want to believe that this is not... Also, if he was a you know if he was a European citizen working in the EU, maybe I could see that being a point. But he's not based in the EU, is he? Uh, no, and I think the EU kind of so a, a that would be overreach. That. It would be really, really overreach. 
Um, just to go back to what we were talking about, though, Sean, if, if you had, and you would have had similar conversations, I'm sure, building up to those interviews with Bashar al-Assad, what would you want to ask Putin? Because there's, there's a lot of... The thing is, when you, when you do sit down with somebody like that, there's a lot of really obvious questions you can ask to which they're already going to have answers, and you kind of know what they are. So what, what would be a, a good question to ask him? I'd like to know what keeps him awake at night and how he feels about the numbers of... Uh, mothers who are protesting about the deaths of their sons. I think to bring things down to a personal level and give you a little bit of an insight into the mindset of Putin would be a good thing. So some people say he's a psychopath. Um, others say that he's just a very clever strategist who's been doing outrageous things to hold on to power for for decades now. And I think to get um, to get a little bit of in, a, a little bit of one off guard comment would make the whole thing worthwhile. Uh, And Marta, just a final thought on this and looking at the American audience for this. Presumably, Putin has some understanding of the fact that he does enjoy actually an American fan club on the conservative side of American politics. And it is, I guess, the irony underpinning all this that the Russian president's American fan club is the conservative side of American politics. Is it clear to you why so much of the Republican Party has gone so soft on Russia uh, in recent years? Are they just... I mean, are they acting out of conviction here or do we have to consider that elements uh, of the Republican Party are in fact on the hook to Moscow? I mean, that is entirely likely. That's definitely the case in a lot of European parties Mm. uh, off the far right who used to be a little bit like Orban. They used to be strongly anti-communist, but seem to have found in Russia... um, a new beacon of hope. Um, and I think some of this has to do with, I, I imagine we can call it with a contrarian, almost a contrarian mm. point of saying we're very attractive to this alternative to the neoliberal order that we now live in. And Putin, to some extent, stands for that. Well, to UK politics now and the revelation of what Liz Truss learned from her seven calamitous weeks as Prime Minister. Nothing. Such is the only reasonable inference from her appearance at the launch of a new political grouping arguably optimistically called Popular Conservatism, abbreviated to Popcon. An obvious attempt to convene a British equivalent to annual American Dingbat Jamboree, the Conservative Political Action Conference, which will delight us later this month, Popcon got off to a rickety but probably illustrative start when of the four star guest speakers originally booked, one withdrew in a huff and the other was punted off the bill before the first bread rolls had been served. Um, Sean, first of all, the, the ongoing, well, fact of Liz Truss on the public stage at all, you would have thought that most people after such a debacle would have run away to sea and grown a beard. Um, she still thinks she's going to do it again, doesn't she? She thinks she's coming back. She seems to, but popular and truss are not words that you hear in the same sentence very often. And the fact that only Liz Truss and Jacob Rees-Mogg turned up to speak at this uh, much-vaunted event um, suggests that there's not a huge amount of momentum behind popcorns, as they're being called. And Truss went into a really strange uh, off-the-cuff 
uh, moment in her speech where she seemed to say that too many British institutions were run by left-wingers who supported LGBT and uh, um, supported uh, uh, ethnic minorities as if that was a terrible thing. So she seemed to be pandering to a particularly bigoted minority of an audience that presumably Popcorn hopes to rally, um, but without doing anything to improve her selling in the, in the general public eye. Well, we were talking earlier, uh, Marta, about the journey Victor Orban has been on, and it is worth remembering that among Liz Truss's very first public appearances was speaking as a delegate at the Liberal Democrat conference advocating for the abolition of the monarchy. Uh, but she now said uh, at this popcorn beano that, and I quote, Britain is full of secret conservatives, people who agree with us but don't want to admit it because they think it's not acceptable in their place of work, it's not acceptable at their school. Um, does that sound plausible to you? Not really. It just seems to be a almost this import of the US war on woke mm. that is now coming in. I, I, I work at a university. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's a super woke environment, or at least not in the way that the conservatives seem to interpret it. Uh, they seem to have, think that universities are hotbeds of radicalism and, again, woke ideology where everyone just wants gender-neutral bathrooms. That's that's not really what they're like. And it's it's a very strange turn that parts of the Conservative Party in the UK have taken in picking this culture war as the thing that they think is going to win their votes when, in fact, very few people care about it. Well, this is what I, I do wonder, Sean, whether they they have got the or they have developed the sort of brain rot that often affects the, the terminally online, because when I've spoken to actual pollsters about this, and I mean proper pollsters who actually walk the streets of the United Kingdom, knock on people's doors and ask, you know, actual people what they think about stuff, they'll say most people have almost no idea what the word woke even means, uh, and those that have actually heard of it are kind of unclear on whether it's supposed to be a good thing or not. Yeah, this is a tussle between perhaps intellectuals on, on both sides. And they intellectuals to, is doing some lifting Well, intellectuals there. may be an exaggeration, <laughs> but they try to draw in uh, mass market papers like the Daily Mail and the Sun into this argument. And I don't imagine for one minute that these stories are the best read in the paper. So the other thing that the popcorns were trying to do yesterday was pick on the environment as the issue where they thought they could probably get some traction with public opinion. So they were against net zero. They were in favour of choosing whether you pay green levies on your electricity bill, they were against the smoking ban. And of course, they, these people were very much against COVID uh, lockdown. But are they on the side of public opinion with those positions? Uh, opinion polls by people such as the one you've described there mm. suggest otherwise. Well, on the subject of those opinion polls, Marta, they do predict that the general election in this country, which is due by January at the latest, uh, will be an absolute massacre, that it, it will reduce the Conservative Party in the Parliament at least substantially. So are we looking here, though, at a possible Conservative future? Because if Sunak loses by the amount he's predicted to, obviously he will have to go. There will be a new leader of the Conservative Party. There will be a new direction for the Conservative Party. Is it possible this could be where it ends up, that it just could go full Yahoo? It could. The Conservative Party, if, if it loses as badly as it is currently suggested, will definitely have to do a lot of soul-searching 
and find out why exactly it is that they lost. Now, part of the reason they have lost is that they are likely to lose at least is that they have been in power for 15 years and a lot of people feel that things haven't really improved for them. Mm. Um, and it's a lot of it is going to depend on what they think the problem was. And they might just think that they weren't hard enough on immigration and that is why they should go even harder. Uh, or they might think, look, maybe austerity was a mistake. Maybe we should rethink a little bit our economic policies. And maybe, in fact, uh, David Cameron, one, um, one Nation Conservative, was a better approach. So I think a lot of it is going to be down to the lessons they draw from losing really, really badly. Well, to France now, about whose people we may have to learn to make fewer jokes rooted in the stereotype of a hyperactive libido. A new poll by the French Institute of Public Opinion, or IFOP, has discovered that a counterintuitive quantity of French folk would, if they're honest, rather watch television or play a video game, and that quite startling numbers of young people in particular, perhaps a quarter of those aged 18 to 24, cannot be bothered at all. Adjust for the fact that in this of all realms people tend to exaggerate upwards, it suggests that future generations of British people may not even understand such jokes as... Now I've got my lovely fire, I'm as happy as a Frenchman who's invented a pair of self-removing trousers. <laughs> Hugh Laurie as Prince George in Blackadder III, one of many British comedy series which would be several episodes shorter if they took out all the gags about French lasciviousness. Um, Marty, you, you are here as our authority on, on all things French. You've spent vastly more time there than either of us have. Um, we'll discuss the modern difficulty or disinterest shortly, but was there ever really anything to the stereotype or was just this always a confection of, frankly, resentful and bitter British people? I uh, Probably there's a little bit of both, but when you think about French cinema or even French art, uh, a lot of it uh, tends towards lasciviousness, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, so there might be some truth to it. Um, what I will say, though, is that this does seem to put Macron in a little bit of trouble since he has just announced that one thing that he really thinks is important for France is to relaunch fertility. Mm. Um, and if the French are not going to be enjoying the company of each other, then that is going to be a very, very difficult thing to achieve. <laughs> I think we need to be clear, Sean, that and part of the, the syndrome that I introduced this item with, um, this is not a phenomenon exclusively confined to France. It's just that British newspapers are enjoying making fun of the fact that there is a French angle here. Um, they never need asking twice. You've worked in British newspapers. You know this. Um, but, but does there seem to be a clear reason, and it is a thing across the developed world, um, and could it be the fact that human existence only continued up until the 21st century because there just wasn't so much else to do? No, fewer, fewer games, less social media, that sort of thing. Mm. Maybe. Uh, there's one bit of analysis in the reports about this uh, decline in French sexual activity today which rings true, which is that France was engulfed by a sexual frenzy in the 60s <laughs> and that uh, the current generation inevitably does less of what the generation before was doing. But where this works across the, uh, the, the, the piece, whether you're talking about America or Europe, and the figures are, are similar, uh, is that um, there are good things happening, which is that people are having sex later for the first time. Mm -hmm. So in, the fr in France, the figures were that um, the number of people 
having sex between the ages of 18 and 24, um, has gone down. It was 5%. It had never had sex in 2006. Now it's 28%. But that's quite a good thing, isn't it, that people are leaving it a bit later to lose their virginity. And another really good thing that people are saying is that women are not saying yes out of a sense of conjugal duty anymore. They will have sex if they want to, uh, rather than when they don't want to. And surely that can also only be a good thing. Is it possible, do you think, uh, Marta, to identify this as actual progress, that maybe this is an improvement uh, on the reputation that that France rather revelled in during the 1960s? Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, (laughs) She said sounding incredibly convinced. Yeah, I I just I I think that the French have a bad reputation for so many things uh, (laughs) that I don't know if losing a reputation for being incredibly horny is going to improve their general reputation overall. Um, On that unimprovable analysis, uh, Marta Lorimer and Sean Ryan, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show, our On This Day historical series considers the melancholy exile in France of one of the 20th century's more wretchedly hapless despots. Step right up, come on in. If you'd like to take... When a fellow finds himself in his mid-40s, unemployed, flat broke and living in a shed in the garden of the house of the father of the woman who recently divorced him, he may well incline to curse his luck. He probably should, however, reflect on such decisions of his own as may have led him to this unhappy and undignified situation, especially if he was born rich, inherited power, was basically presented at birth with all the equipment necessary for the construction of a useful, commendable and pleasant life. It is not clear, however, that self-awareness was ever Jean-Claude de Vallier's long suit. It all went askew for him on February 7th, 1986. The sound there of a small and hastily improvised presidential motorcade proceeding at a considerable clip to the airport, very much in the hope that the plane's engines are already running, with a view to enacting takeoff before the pursuing mob have got their pitchforks through security. Jean-Claude de Vallier had been president of Haiti since 1971, assuming the role at the age of 19 upon the death of his father, Francois. Francois de Vallier, better known as Papa Doc, a nod to his background as a physician, was a thug and a crook and a lunatic. He reputedly kept the head of one vanquished opponent in his office. His Praetorian Guard-slash-personal death squad, the infamous Tonton Makuts, tortured and murdered thousands of Papa Doc's enemies, real and imagined. During one paranoid frenzy, Papa Doc had ordered the extermination of all black dogs in Haiti, believing that a possible rival had assumed such a form. The fact that said rival was in fact the commander of the Tonton Makuts, Clement Barbo, is an unimprovable demonstration of Papa Doc's theories of leadership. The ceremonial panoply with which Duvalier surrounded himself was never more than a camouflage to cover the absolute power he himself held. He and those around him wove a spell of terror over Haiti, conjured up out of voodoo mysticism and administered at gunpoint. 
When Papa Doc, who believed himself immortal, at least understood that he was departing this corporeal realm, a referendum was put to Haiti's people, asking them to endorse Jean-Claude, known as Baby Doc, as his successor, President for Life. The result was recorded at 2,391,916 2, votes in favour, one against, with two abstentions. Uh -huh. This vote has not since been regularly upheld as a model of free, fair, transparent democracy in action. As president, Baby Doc was an improvement on Papa Doc, at least inasmuch that it is preferable to be governed by a gormless moron than a rampaging maniac. However, Baby Doc's expensive tastes played badly with Haiti's generally impoverished people, especially as it was, theoretically, their money. He spent a fortune on his wedding. His wife spent several fortunes in the boutiques of Paris. The population grew restive. The United States, which had been vaguely content to prop Baby Doc up on the grounds that he wasn't Fidel Castro, intimated that he had outlived his usefulness. Early on this day, 38 years ago, as whatever was left in Haiti's treasury that hadn't been squandered on parties and shoes was funneled out of the country, Baby Doc addressed the nation. C'est pourquoi, désirant entrer dans l'histoire, la tête haute, la conscience tranquille, j'ai décidé. The Duvaliers decamped to France, where they owned at least four splendid homes. It was supposed to be a temporary arrangement, but nobody else would take them. Initially, the former first couple seemed to have gotten away with it, living large on what they had looted, give or take one police raid during which Mrs. Duvalier was caught attempting to flush receipts for $169,000 from Givenchy, $270,000 from Boucheron, and nearly ten grand for two children's horse saddles from Hermes. As you leave, you'll see the night. Baby Doc's divorce in 1993 should have instilled in him some empathy with the Haitian people, at least inasmuch as someone else ran off with all his cash. At one especially low point, he was arrested for attempting to swerve a bill from a $78 a night pension. He returned to Haiti in 2011, did face some charges but no meaningful justice, and lived reasonably comfortably, certainly compared to the squalor endured by most of his fellow citizens until his death, aged 63, in 2014. He's a president we will never have again in Haiti. We will never forget him. We will remember him with regret. We always think about him. With due acknowledgement of the risks of mistaking one vox-popped rando for the voice of a nation, it is a dismal reflection on Haitian governance since that the rule of baby doc is recalled by anybody as a relative golden era. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Miller. And that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Marta Lorimer and Sean Ryan. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by Naoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nickel. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.